0: listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Yo, Tony, how's it going? Man, just staying busy. Tis the season. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, I got a new holiday drink you should try. All right, what you got? We call it the blitzing. We're doing... One ounce of cinnamon whiskey, one ounce of rum chata, one ounce of Kahlua. Shake it, pour over some ice. You should rim your cup with some uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal. Take it back to the 90s. Let me know what you think, man. Man, no other bar catching you with that one. You slayed it. Dude, that is the bad dad joke of
1: the year right there, bro. Hey, Alex, what's happening? Hey, Tony. Let me me get a sidecar, hold the the damn sugar. I don't want it to be sweet. You got it,
2: man, hang on.
1: Uh, Hey, Chris, I didn't know you were regular here. Hey, Alex. Yeah, man, how you holding up? I'm good, man, surviving, you know, during Corona and uh, the pandemic. Got my daughter off of TikTok today, uh, but she's still addicted to Facebook. So, you know, who knows uh, what information they're keeping on us us these days. I think it's totally a trap for kids. I know the feeling
0: if we only had a way to control what they control. Oh, look who just crept in. I think I know who that is. Yeah, he's a regular, been coming here for a long time. We should go catch up with him.
1: Yeah, I, I agree, yeah, I'll be here a while. Cool, let's do it.
0: I am here with Bruce Schneier, an internationally renowned security technologist and security guru. He's the author of over one dozen books, including his latest, We Have Root, as well as hundreds of articles, essays, and academic papers. His influential newsletter, Cryptogram, and his blog, Schneier on Security, are read by over 250,000 people. He's testified before Congress, is a frequent guest on TV and radio, has served on several government committees, and is regularly quoted in the press. Bruce, thank you, and welcome to Barcode Podcast.
2: Yeah, nice to be here, I guess, virtually, since we can actually be anywhere. Exactly. So. You're a veteran
0: in the cybersecurity field, and you continue to inspire others by being extremely active online and other knowledge-sharing platforms. I'm curious to know how you personally continue to learn and what methodology you use to remain at your level of prestige. Uh,
2: I mean, <laughs> level of prestige aside, but but learning is reading, right? I mean, that's it's a lot of people doing great work, and it's just reading everything you can find. I read a lot of other people's blogs and news sites and articles and papers and books. People are sending me stuff a lot. The benefit of writing my blog is that there's a lot of readers who send me stuff that might interest me. So stuff comes to me, but you, know, you keep up by by reading because you don't know everything and a lot of other people know things and you want to know what they know. Definitely. Yeah, that's how I tend to learn also. And
0: especially during the COVID era where it's been much more difficult to get out and interact with peers. So With that, I'm curious to know how the pandemic has affected you personally
2: and how you've had to adjust your typical workflow. I mean, professionally is kind of obvious. We're not flying everywhere. I I used to travel a lot. I mean, in the before, I traveled all the time. And uh, it's either teaching or speaking or consulting. Now, my average speed was 32 miles an hour over the year, and it dropped to you know less than one, it dropped to driving speed, I guess, less because I'm sleeping too. So it really did affect the way I work, really it affect the way I live my life because I, I spent a lot of time on airplanes, and that was the big thing. Uh, secondarily, it's you know, it's harder to concentrate, it's harder to get things done, it's harder to focus. So I'm writing less. I mean I'm trying to write a book and it's not going that great. Not because it's a bad topic because it's hard to sit down for a few hours and and really work cuz there's a lot of things that are distracting and the world's distracting. Whether that's covid or racial justice or the election. Now 2020 has really been a dumpster fire. So it has <laughs> Looking forward to 2021. Those are the major differences You know, right? Not traveling and sort of not being being as focused. Other than that, you know, I'm lucky. You know, I don't have to go to an office. I don't have to put myself in danger. You know, I can be home. And then the effects are all the personal things, right? Not seeing friends, not doing things. You know, the stuff we all have to have to deal with. But you know, I mean, the, the hope is by summer we might have some semblance of normalcy. You know i might be able, willing to get on a plane again by spring if there's there's a sort of you know a, enough take on the on the vaccine we'll see how it goes
0: crazy times yep the, the new normal right
2: <laughs> right it, it's it's 2020 right yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the pan pan and yep. uh you know we're just living through the pad it's sort of bizarre thinking about this sort of break in, in in your life and in the, in the way we we work and the way we play and the way we do everything but yeah 2020 is going to be a year for uh history books
0: definitely fire just got hacked i didn't see that fire
2: just got hacked and that was interesting they uh this is so this is Mandiant that got hacked right so this is the uh intelligence arm and hmm. they had their attack tools popped or at least they're mirrors of, it's hard to tell exactly, but, but it was stuff that was offensive in nature, that, where they published uh, the signatures, where they said to the antivirus companies, here, you know, we are going to depreciate all these for our use, and you need to have them on your list of things that you block if you see anybody using them. We don't know who did it. Uh, it seems like it was the Russians. And hard to tell if they were after Mandiant or after Mandiant's customers. Still a bunch we don't know. But that it was interesting to to see, and and there's a lot of detail there. I think we'll uh, we'll learn. Kevin Mandy is, I think, really good about uh, being public about this. So I don't think he's going to hide stuff. He, or, I mean, he already pulled the bandaid off and said we were hacked. This is a big deal. Right? Everything else is going to be positive. So I think we'll get more details. A lot we don't know.
1: Absolutely. I, I think the transparency is really important to, you know, to that event.
2: Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, trust yeah. is is what that company has. Absolutely. You just don't want that coming out right, where, where you didn't say it.
1: Yeah. Being leaked through the press or some other, you know, some other method of, of dissemination. Yep. Absolutely. You actually got a little blurry on
2: your camera. I don't know. Did? Uh, you know, I, I don't know what it is. Sometimes you go in and out of focus. Go. Yeah, you know, we're all we're we're all living on Zoom these days, so <laughs> we just forgot to make it work. Tell me again, because I actually don't have my self view up, because it's like really creepy to watch yourself all day. Yep. That's my sort of number one Zoom meeting uh, advice. Turn yourself off because it is stressful looking at yourself. I do the same thing. have a more, you know, yeah. more natural meeting if you don't. So. second piece of advice I'll give everybody for Zoom is is that now you can move people around. I don't know if you know that. But if you have like 10 people up on Zoom, like you're moving icons on your iPhone, you can pick a, a tile up and move it to different places.
1: That's very helpful. Yeah.
2: yeah. Right? And, and encryption's better. Zoom's done a lot. Yeah. You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, I was beating them up pretty regularly on my blog for having lousy security. And in a lot of ways, it's not unexpected. It makes no sense to have a secure product that nobody uses. You're better off having insecure product that people use. So if you're a new company, you tend to skimp on that right? and, and you get more security, more reliability, more of those things as you become more popular. They got pushed into popularity so fast that they really had to scramble to catch up with their security and reliability and usability and all those things. I think they've done a really good job. I've been impressed with them. And, and you know, to me, they are the most reliable, versatile, useful platform out there. Although I, I will give a shout out to gather it's a way to do a virtual party. You have a little icon, you move around a virtual room and when you're physically near, when you're, when your avatars near someone else's avatar, a video pops up. Oh, so it feels like a party. We're trying to mirror as much as we can of the real world life online. And it's, it's sort of amazing that we're doing things we never would imagine we would be doing a year ago telemedicine, telepsychology, teleteaching, Tele this, tele that. And, and security and reliability and all those things are, are are catching up.
0: Have you done any of the virtual conferences yet?
2: I have. I've run virtual conferences, right? We, we, you know conferences have to happen. We're doing research. We want to promulgate it. So and again, it's a matter of of trying to mirror not just the talks. I mean that's pretty easy, but the hallway conversations. Mm-hmm. So I, I ran a conference where, when it was the break time, we would put people into random uh, break, uh, random breakout rooms in Zoom. Five people. To mirror, you know, you're at a table, you're just talking to some colleagues, and you see what's going on. And so you really do want to try to mirror all those things.
0: Definitely. So, Bruce, I'm sure you saw the IBM X-Force report on cyber attackers targeting the COVID-19 cold chain, uh, which is vital in delivering the... Uh, vaccine and properly storing it at safe temperatures. What is your view on this? And then also, what other attack vectors do you see going forward within the the COVID-19 cold chain specifically?
2: You know, I'm not sure about that cold chain attack and what that meant. I mean, certainly we are seeing nation states go after their research. Now, I'm actually not sure that's valuable. I mean, what good is it that if I have a lab's research, I kind of need... They're probably I mean, it's probably cheaper for me to buy it from them than to reproduce it, but countries are going after it. I don't know about the cold chain in particular. That was weird to me, and I couldn't tell if that was part of a bigger operation. Again, we don't know what's going on. You know, I I do see it as an intelligence target. I was uh, on a Zoom with someone who works for a major healthcare company as the uh, the CISO, and she was talking about the attack she's seen against COVID-related research just pretty much constantly. So countries are trying to get an upper hand here. I mean this is stuff that is very much sort of above our pay grade. Right? This is nation state stuff. This isn't cybercrime. This isn't ransomware. This isn't a virus. This is some government going after your stuff. Right? You know, and it's really hard to defend against that because they just have a bigger budget than you do. But yes, that's that, that is it is a thing and it's probably going to be a thing moving forward. It's probably not going to go away. Because this research is is valuable.
0: And that security should really fit into the security framework. You know, there's no vaccine security uh, evolving. I think that all needs to be in place already and, and uh, yeah, yeah just the to get your is right. take on that.
2: Yeah, the biosecurity is going to be interesting to watch. I mean, a lot of it is is reliability. I mean, right the reason we uh, spend so much time testing and verifying, before we approve a vaccine is the cost of getting it wrong is enormous. I mean, not, not only do people have a false sense of security, the virus itself might be harmful, and the, the loss of public confidence when the next vaccine shows up is very expensive. I mean already we're, we're in a country where you're probably going to have a third of the people who don't want the vaccine. And that's, gonna add, and that's kind of insane. I remember reading an article just last week, uh, I guess in the 1960s, I, I forget the year, Elvis Presley got the first polio vaccine on television. Right? So where are those spokespeople for today's generations who are going to go on, I guess, YouTube now and, right, and get the vaccine? in public
1: you're absolutely right and i think i think previous presidents right have, have announced that they would take the vaccine first so obama bush and clinton came out saying you know they would be the public spokesperson to, right. to take
2: and that's good so vaccine. we got we got people in both parties but i kind of want taylor swift to do it right right, right? I, mean, yeah. I mean i want Ted Nugent to do favorites. it right i want yeah. i want icons for pretty much every political group to do it i want the pope to do it absolutely right i mean the more the more people the more people that people trust do it the more trustworthy it'll be and this is very much a public hygiene issue right i am safer if you take the vaccine or right? you are safer if i take the vaccine so we so that's what we want
1: yeah no absolutely i i, I agree with that completely the more the more public facing they make that the easier it'll be for, for everyone else to follow suit
0: So continuing down the political path, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts regarding cybersecurity efforts within the upcoming Biden administration. Do you think cyber threat detection will become a top priority?
2: Yeah, so it's hard to know. Right. Cybersecurity is a priority, but it's hard to know. I mean, these are the thousand priorities right now. I mean, we got to sort of like fix everything. So I don't know where this will land. I'm part of of a group that the Aspen Institute runs the Aspen Cybersecurity Group. And we meet a few times a year, and, and it's a really good group of government, industry, academic, weirdos like me who come together on cybersecurity issues. And we just published a report, a 70-page report, which is basically a, it's called A National Cybersecurity Agenda for Resilient Digital Infrastructure. Basically, these are the things we want the new administration to do now. There's a lot of things we could do. Here's some things that are really important right now. Uh, So I'll give you our list. And there's a lot of details, but it's a big report. Uh, Education, workforce development, right? Fill that cybersecurity uh, skills gap. Public core resilience, right? We need our basic infrastructure, internet infrastructure to be more resilient. Supply chain security. I mean, whether it's Huawei or uh, TikTok or Kaspersky, you know, how do we secure or, or, or cheap uh, imported Internet of Things crap? How do we make sure that stuff is secure? Uh, measuring cybersecurity. We have a huge problem and not even able to measure what we got. And then uh, operational collaboration. How do we get a collaboration between industry and government, government and government, industry and industry, academia and everybody else? I mean, a lot of silos. And how do we get those all cooperating? Those are the five areas we came up with. I mean, there's probably 15 more we can go into, but we said, these are the top things that you, and we wrote it not knowing who would win the election, that you, new administration, need to deal with. So that's my list right now. How optimistic am I? Man, eh, maybe, you know, we'll see.
0: Yeah. I hear they're looking for someone to run CISA.
2: I hear they're looking for someone to <laughs> run CISA. You know, I I'm, I'm, I don't like being in charge. Actually, I don't like authority in general. I'm go. bad. I'm just bad at authority. I don't want to, I'm not just like being someone above me. I don't like having authority. I just don't yeah. I like being a free agent. It's, it's more fun. I got you. That's,
1: Plus that's who wants want to, to live it. in DC? Yeah, <laughs> I, Alex is close. Yep, yeah, I'm actually out of Maryland. I used to live in DC. Okay. It's, I do have a follow up question to that since, since we went down the CISA route. Um, so how do you feel about CISA kind of taking the role and, and Chris Krebs specifically for the misinformation you know, campaign that I guess, if you want to call it that, that he, he took upon himself to inform the public on?
2: Well, someone had to do it. I mean, really, we really don't have a real clean civilian cybersecurity organization like some other countries do. CISA seems to be moving into that role. And that's not a bad place. You know, I I would prefer it under NIST than DHS, but uh, maybe DHS is NIST under DHS. I don't even I don't even know how those things work anymore. You know, I want it more civilian, but I mean, he did a good job, and it's, it was it ceases turning into a good organization by coming kind of out of nowhere. So you know, it's got to be somewhere. So it's as good a good place as any. You don't want the NSA doing it. You don't want Cyber Command doing it. So so that's 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 better.
1: Right. And, and, and I guess to that to that point, um, my follow up question would be, where do you think, you know, that misinformation falls in on the list of priorities? You know, should something be established right to, to battle that,
2: you know, well, um, the, the question asked is, what is what should that thing be? Right. Because because, you know, it, as you start digging into this topic and the people do a lot more work than I do on misinformation, it is it is extremely hard. I mean, you just can't publish the truth and say, well, we've solved misinformation. Because those who believe what you published, you didn't need to help them. And those who you need to help didn't believe what you published. Right. So there's, there's very deep things about trust and how information spreads. And I think a lot of it's going to come down to, to regulating the, uh, the tech monopolies. You know, the, the, whether we should like burn democracy down in the interest of short-term corporate profits kind of seems like an obvious no, but there's really no mechanism to turn that no into action because where you know in our society near term corporate profits are the thing that runs everything even things that have no business being run by near term corporate profits so you know it's going to take a lot of work and it's it's hard to figure out how we're going to get from here to there and it's not something i study in the level of detail that others do so i hesitate to jump in and say well here's how to fix it
0: so I do want to hit on the decentralization of the internet, and you know your thoughts on if it will ever happen, uh, and if you believe it will, you know what hurdles do we need to overcome that exist today uh, to get to that point?
2: Well, I mean, ever is a long time, so I, mean, I think it will happen because it's really the only way to uh, to move forward. The generative nature of the internet is is vital and something that we all benefit from. And again, having it captured for near term corporate profits of you know some companies that happen to be the monopolies right now. It kind of makes no sense. Uh, I mean, there is right now jockeying going on in in the FCC. I mean, the Republicans are trying to push somebody through, and I don't know the details of whether they did or not, or they're they're going to or have done to to really block a Democrat majority, which would enshrine net neutrality. I mean, not sure why this really seems. I don't know. But I mean, I think if you're a free market, you really want net neutrality. So I can't right, quite get the politics. It might just be, here, we gave you a lot of money to your campaigns, do what we want, which you know too much American politics runs on. So it's going to take some movement in the political sphere. And then it's just a matter of doing it. So it, it, it's political will, not technical will. And I'm come really out of my sea when I'm predicting what's going to happen there. I mean, we don't know what a Biden administration is going to look like. True. You know, he's he's certainly uh, a pretty conservative Democrat. Very middle of the road. Very true. But, you know, that's what was needed to get elected. And that's why we have one. So I don't know. We I don't know. We have to see.
0: So a lot of these these technologies that are pushing towards that, how do you trust those companies? And along the lines of more, I guess, anonymization and privacy. So, you know, you have DuckDuckGo for one, you have you.com, which I just read about the other day. That's uh, right. Just they're just getting, getting
2: funding and they're going to be a Google competitor. I mean, that's, I don't know who invested in it. I'm going to compete against Google, but that's a, that's a risky bet.
0: Excel yeah, force. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, leadership. So, right. So, so a good
2: pedigree, but still a risky bet. I mean, right. you ask, I think an extremely subtle question and, and people ask that question a lot without realizing how subtle this, how do you trust and how do you trust anything? Right? How do you trust, I don't know, that the, again, I, these are all analogies from the before, the taxi you drive in, the plane you fly in, the food you eat in a restaurant, let alone your ISP, the people who make your computer, your software, your hardware, your cloud provider, your cloud storage, your search engine. And the answer in all those cases, is uh, you kind of just do because you hear good things. You know, it's never the case that, you you know, you go to the airplane and say, you know, before I get on, I'm going to look at the engine. I'm going to check the maintenance log. Show me the training certificates of the pilot. You never do that. And it's worth thinking about why. And it's because a couple of things. You kind of know in your mind that the airline you're flying and the airline general crash pretty much never. So you kind of trust. In my case, it's Delta. I live in Minneapolis. Delta has a monopoly. I trust Delta Airlines. I trust the government regulations, right? The FAA on aircraft maintenance and aircraft design. Even with the 737 Max problem, right? I still trust it. I trust their rules on, you know, pilot rest and pilot training. You know, without even really knowing what they are. And that is a very soft social. Non-technical, non-deterministic system of trust, and that's pretty much how they all work, all right? How do you pick a VPN? Yeah, you, know, you kind of pick it at random. And right, how do you pick a search engine? How do you pick a cloud provider, an ISP? All those things. You know, you know what your friends do. You you know what you read. You kind of make a guess. How do you pick a doctor? How do you pick out an attorney? And it had a tax account. So again and again and again. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's worth uh, more study than, than I'm able to give it. I did write a book on, on trust, sort of on security. It's, uh Maybe it's about six years old now, the great name of Liars and Outliers. And this is really about the sociology of trust and how security systems fall into the mix. So I try to explore some of these questions, and they get more subtle and weird the more you go. I mean, talking about how do you trust results of this election? You know, I could, we could publish data. We can do audits. Will it convince people who don't trust results of the election? Probably not. What will convince them? Hard to tell. But it's not a battle of the facts. It's a battle of narratives, of ideas, of sides. How do i get someone to trust a vaccine you know it might be if elvis takes it on national tv people will trust it but you know that's theater and that's that show that is just a demonstration stunt probably more valuable for trust than publishing any medical papers in any journals
1: yeah no i i absolutely agree inherent trust is is this very interesting topic so i I agree with you on, on many levels. Uh, from from the trust side of things, it is an extremely subtle question, and, and especially in regards to the election, right? How do you convince anyone of anything at this point?
2: Um, right. I think is you know, a, a especially now that you can find a new source that supports your narrative, right? Or even a news source, uh, you know, a Reddit group, right? A Facebook group. You will you can find whatever weird thing you believe. I mean, right? the flat earthers have found each other and it makes them like more convinced, not less. And they've got little scientific experiments that prove the earth is flat. I mean, they've got math, they've got calculus, they've got evidence. You know, and if I can't convince flat earthers, I mean, I have no hope with people who think the vaccine's bad.
1: Yeah, (laughs) this is a very interesting, interesting way to broach the subject. With with flat Earth being the the comparison. I, I do think that is it, it is an extreme, but no, to your point, they've they've all found each other, right? They all have a sounding board, they all have a group of people that agree with their views. And how do you convince then the tribe, right? Of anything.
2: Yeah. That's right. I mean, if you're if you're a million, if you're one in a million, there's like a group of a hundred and something people just like you, and you're gonna find them.
1: And I think, you know, that is the the internet has has prolificated that, right? I mean, that has allowed those views to you know, disseminate throughout throughout society. So, you know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, I, I, I'm honestly indifferent to it most times. Uh, I, I subscribe to the opinion that that maybe not everyone should be as vocal as they are, but
2: that is the world <laughs> we live in, right? It is the world we live. In. I mean, I mean, and, and, and but this is this is a world we we choose to live in, right? We have decided that the value of free speech is greater. Than the problems of false speech. And, and we do that for a real good reason. I mean, it, it's easy to say that speaker is bad and, and shouldn't be allowed to speak because they're speaking nonsense. But then you have to step back and say, who gets to make that decision? right And what if it's someone you don't like making that decision? And you know, once you have decided there are tiers of speech and some are more valuable, more socially acceptable, more something more true. Now you have to step back and say, well, who's making that determination and why do we trust them to do it? Who is the, truth who's the right, arbiter? Who is the arbiter? And the right. benefit of free speech is there's no arbiter. Now that's tied up very much in power because we might have free speech, but you know, myself as someone with a blog that a quarter million people read, or you with a podcast that, uh, whatever your audience watches, we have more power of speech than someone else who doesn't have those platforms. And because we're a bunch of white guys, we actually have more power of speech than, than others. And we have to recognize that. So free speech doesn't necessarily mean everybody's ideas get exposed equally. And how, so how do we elevate voices that have traditionally been marginalized and make sure they can enjoy <laughs> the benefits of free speech and not just us.
1: Yeah, I hate to sum this up in in, in basic terms, but social responsibility comes along with the platform of,
2: of it, you know, you know it, 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 it often doesn't, but it should come along with it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Agreed. Agreed. So in terms of net neutrality, what do you see needs to happen in order for us to achieve it?
2: I think carriers, I mean, I think, God, you, you have two choices if you're in the internet. You could either be a carrier, in which case you have to be agnostic to what you carry. If you are Zoom, you cannot edit what people are saying. Right? If you are uh, email, if you are Instagram, if you are, if you, I guess, so I'll pull out Instagram for a second. Right? If you are a carrier, you need to be neutral. If you are a publisher, curate all you want, but you are now responsible for what you publish. Problem is, a lot of companies like Facebook want it both ways. They want no responsibility for what we say, yet they want to curate. So I think net neutrality is vital. We need carriers of all types in the internet infrastructure. We also need publishers. And I want companies to be forced to choose. So Instagram, are you a carrier? In which case you give people a, an account, they post their photos, they post their text, and you, you, you don't do any editing and you are not liable for anything anybody posts or you curate, right? And if you curate, you have some liability for what people post, pick one. Right. AT&T does not advertise on my phone line. Right. They do no curation. If AT&T wanted to advertise on my phone line, it's a different sort of animal. And that different rules should apply. That's my basic belief.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm curious in, in, in context, right? And I, I know this, um, this may broach into EFF uh, topics, but Section 230 is, is pretty hot right now for you know trump wants it repealed completely so that you know tech companies have to be held responsible for the censorship that, that they're getting like twitter right now right for some of the election fraud uh, censorship that they're doing on twitter so i'm curious what your stance on 230 is and and uh if you believe it should be there or shouldn't
2: so i think it's really important because it establishes this neutrality i mean section 230 means if you write a comment on my blog i'm not liable for it Right, because my blog, because I'm I'm essentially a carrier there, right? Right. I post everything. That is vital. I couldn't have a blog comment section without that. Right. In Mm -hmm. some ways, Facebook couldn't exist without that. I think it has been pushed to extremes. Right, so Tinder uses Section 230 to not have to take down a profile that was maliciously put up by the ex-boyfriend of some guy. Hmm. But that seems a, a stretch. So I think Section 230 has been stretched out of its original intent, but its original intent is vital for the internet to work as it does today. That otherwise, everyone has to be like you, like this podcast, where you record it, and if I say something crazy, you edit it out, because you don't want to be liable for what I say, and you are, because it's your podcast. It's really different from the comments section, right? Sort of under the episode. Absolutely. So, so I think we need a conversation about two thirty. Get it back to its original roots, but I think repealing it would be a freaking disaster for so many things on the. It would break the internet that we know.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears here and actually ask you about uh, Inrupt. Um, so, you know, Chris and I have been talking over the past few days, again, about decentralization, um, kind of what people are calling, if you will, buzzwordy Web 3.0, you know, the decentralization of Internet and kind of the prolification of big tech companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, kind of owning everything at this point, which, which this is my my opinion. The, the idea of the Internet was originally to be decentralized um, and everything just kind of moved this way as, you know, it went to a service model, right?
2: Um, uh, I think things naturally centralize yep. and we just have to constantly fight it. And it's not just the, the a service model, it's not just the cloud. I mean, I think we had centralization before that and we just have waves of centralization. Right. Right, so I'm, uh, I'm involved in interrupt. Uh, what interrupt is, is a commercialization of solid. Solid is a, a web, uh, open web standard, uh, brainchild of Tim Berners-Lee, right? Who invented the web. And it's a way to put data back under control, under the control of us. The basic idea is that you, I, everybody has a, a pod, has a place for our data. And our data goes there. And the stuff we have writes data to our pod and reads data from it. Right? So you imagine right now if I have a Fitbit, uh, the data is written into Fitbit servers and I have access to it. Well, this flips that model. The data is written into my pod and Fitbit has access to it. Now, there are a bunch of benefits to this. One is I have control, right? I can now decide. I drop my Fitbit and I use something else. Or I uh, you know, have an insurance plan and I get a discount or they get my Fitbit data, I decide to give them access to it. So, so it puts me in control Often companies don't need my data. So like Marriott hotels in the before I was a Marriott customer and they have all my data on their servers. Now, they don't actually want it. It's a liability for them. They just want access to it when they need it. I think they'd be perfectly happy. The data was in my pod and they were guaranteed access. So it is less risky for them. It is better for me. And then it allows all of these third party data aggregation apps. You know, If I wanted to have a program that looked at my Fitbit data, I don't know, and married it with my married hotel data and the data from my refrigerator and my medical data and figured out you know, health plans for me when I was traveling, I just made that up. Because all the data is in my pod, I can do that so suddenly your data is generative and the internet of things is going to produce enormous amount of data about you about your world about your environment and if that data is in a place that you could control you have a lot more power that's really what we're trying now as i'm saying this you can imagine like this is a security nightmare and that's really my job <laughs> to, to, to to deal with that part Understood. But that's the really the, the idea that we, that instead of this data being centralized at Google, at uh, you know, at all of these sites, Marriott Hotels at Fitbit, you will have access to your data. So it, it shuffles it, right? Instead of it all being vertical, it's horizontal. Right? So all my data is here. Now, right, you'll your pod will have to be somewhere. My guess is it'll be like email addresses. And you could run your own email server if you want. You probably don't. You probably have your email hosted at Google or Apple or somebody else. And they'll probably host your pod as well. But like email addresses, it'll be portable. If you don't like what's being done to your pod, you can move it. And there'll be ways you can encrypt it so that uh, maybe the company who's storing it doesn't have access to the data. Or you might want them to. Right? In some cases, I might want Apple to have access to some of this data because... They do a lot of cool things by aggregating it. And just like I might give Google access to my email because they run anti-spam. You know, and I, and so, they had, so they need the unencrypted email to do that. I can, I can encrypt my email. I can encrypt my Gmail if I want, but then I don't get a lot of the benefits of, of Google for Google's processing of it. But, it, but it, it changes the locus of control from the big companies to us. You own your own data again. You own your yeah. own data. And you, and I just thought, so, right. I mean, you can imagine that we're on a Zoom call and we recorded it and I put it in my pod and I give you access to it, right? You've been on the call too, so I'm giving you access. Or maybe we have a fight in a year and I turn off your access. I don't like you anymore. Right? I mean, I I have this control and I can audit who accesses my data with, and not really what they're doing with it, but, but how often they're going after it. So I might give my insurance company access to my medical data. I mean, that might be a requirement. But now I will be able to see, if I want to, what they're looking at.
0: Is that all uh, a cloud service offered by
2: Inro? Well, so here it depends, right? I mean, and, and again, think of it like email. You could run your own email server and store your email on your in your home on your computer. The pods will be the same way. Most people, it'll store and be stored in the cloud, right? Your pod will come with your iPhone, so Apple will have it, or Google will have it. You can imagine being stored locally. There's local storage that comes with your home router. Right? There's a pod in your home router and it's got you know, half a terabyte of storage because that's, that's so cheap. And so there your pod is. And maybe you back it up into the cloud somewhere encrypted, maybe Dropbox or something. Yeah. So I'm making this up. It, it's a very flexible standard. and Then we get to decide how it's implemented. I mean, this is Tim Berners-Lee. He's a surprising visionary, but he's really thinking very generally. And then implementation is could could be many different ways. So I could I think it's mostly going to be in the cloud because all of our everything is in the cloud these days. But you could, if you want, sort locally if if that pendulum shifts back. And my guess is your home router is a good place for something like that.
1: Agreed, especially from a usability standpoint. I think that would make the most sense, right? Right, because it's there. It's going to gonna work
2: automatically. Right. You know, all all the devices in your home, so your refrigerator, your thermostat, your your exercise machine your all your internet of things nonsense will writing to the will write to that pod you'll keep your photos there it could be internally facing and externally facing because it's it's at you at the boundary of your network right, so i take photos for christmas you know pretend it's a year when people are over so it's a different year than this year <laughs> right and i would put them in my pod and i'd give access to my whole family
1: right so I guess I, I have two kind of follow-up questions for uh, the interrupt stuff. Um, one would be, how are you going to get you know, the companies to sign on to, to use um, you know, the pod infrastructure?
2: This is why I, I joined the company, because normally that's a great question, because nobody is going to sign on something like this, because why would you? Right. But you don't have to sign on to the vision to use the data structure, and the data structure itself is valuable. So even if you're not going to, so we have pilots with some big names and I, I know the names, but I forget which names are public. So I'm afraid to say any of them, but they are using, what they're saying is, well, we're going to use this pod, but we're going to keep the pod. We're not giving the customers the pod. We're going to keep it. That's fine. It starts the process. They're using the data structure. The pods are movable, the pods can be virtual, they can be, they can be combined. it all works work seamlessly for the user. But that gets the data structure seated. And once the data structure is seated, you'll have, I think, smaller companies signing on because it's benefit. A big company like Facebook, like will be the last to use pods. right? Google will be the last to use pods. But that Google competitor, more likely to. All right. So so you're gonna have these single use pods, these single entity pods first, then opened up to some smaller users, and then opened up to bigger ones. That's probably where it's gonna flow. And it's that kind of, of usage flow that makes this possible. Right, the data structure is really flexible and really valuable, even if you don't give a user a pod where he puts everything.
1: No, I I really really enjoy that answer because I wasn't sure from you know the adoption standpoint how you get, how it was going. About.
2: And that's always you know. the hard part, right? I mean, this yeah. is something that works best when everyone's using it. So how do I have a chicken and egg problem?
1: Yep, exactly. So so that kind of leads into my next question. Um, and Chris and I have talked about this a couple times. He he told me that you weren't exactly a fan of blockchain um, or you know blockchain for decentralizing you know applications across the board. And um, one of the ones that you know I've used was called Blockstack you know, there's different efforts out there, right? From a decentralization standpoint. Um, can you talk to, about how, you know, Inrupt is different from blockchain and, and what maybe the
2: advantages or disadvantages are? Inrupt has, it, it has nothing to do with blockchain, right? Blockchain is a particular technology, mm-hmm. which I will say is absolutely no use at all, ever, for anything. I it's, guess they're both data structures is, is kind of, the same, but, right? but the data structure isn't the blockchain, right? The data structure is a Merkle tree. Okay. And if you need a Merkle tree, use a Merkle tree. It's nothing to do with a blockchain. I guess blockchains use Merkle trees, but but Merkle trees are are separate. I've written a, you just type Bruce Schneier blockchain into Google, mm-hmm. or I guess the new search engine, which will be Google's competitor. And uh, you'll see, I wrote an essay in Wired a couple of years ago, which goes through the, and it goes back to trust, back to one of our original topics. This notion that blockchain is trustless is complete and total nonsense. And understanding how trust flows you quickly realize that whenever you see a blockchain application, the blockchain part actually doesn't provide any value. It's just the application. So, and and this isn't a fringe view. I mean, pretty much everybody in computer security says this about blockchain. It's dumb. And it's just a bunch of, you know, small libertarian crypto bros that kind of like it because it's kind of stick-it-to-the-man stuff. But I think the fad is going to go away soon.
0: Do you think, you know, with... Cryptocurrency, that it was more of the application taking advantage of blockchain versus blockchain emerging as a technology stack.
2: No, I mean, I mean, people like Bitcoin because it's not backed by it's very political. You know, and, and that's the only reason it's, it's and, and why do people trust Bitcoin? Not because of the math, because their friends trust Bitcoin. Right, you know, why do they trust a wallet? All the wallets get hacked. Why do they trust an exchange? The exchanges get hacked because of 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 what they read, of friends, and 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 the system. It's not it's not trust in the technology. So I think block, I think Bitcoin and blockchain in general is part of this sort of anti-government movement. This idea that we don't need governments, which of course is nonsense. You all need government. You, just, you might not like it, but you do. And, and you know, the fact that oh, all the blockchains are failing because of governance problems shows you that you need government and governance. So, and I think whenever you see a blockchain application, it has never been the case that someone says, oh, I have this problem. Oh, wait, blockchain can solve it. They go the other way. They say, I have this blockchain. Uh, what can I do with it? And that's why you see things like blockchain voting, which is like the dumbest of dumb ideas.
0: So, Bruce, I can do the the standard endorsements here. You got your blog, you're active on Twitter. Although any other projects, research. So I'm not active on Twitter.
2: I have oh, so, not. <laughs> right I have my blog and I have a bot that tweets my blog posts. Got it. Right? I have a blog and I have a Facebook page that, that posts links to my my blog. I am not on any social media. Got it. Got so put this all together. I don't even have access to these accounts. So I am extremely old school. I have a blog, Schneier on Security, Schneier.com. I have an email address. And that's how I interact with the world. So I'm not on any social media, which makes me a freak, but highly productive.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd like to get to that point. Uh, You know, It's tough, though.
2: It is tough. And and, and I think not being on Facebook affects your social life. Actually, when we had social lives, it affected your social life. But it's a huge time sink. And I'm just not willing to do it. But again, that makes me a freak. I get that.
0: All right. So I just overheard that it's last call at the bar. So I have one last question for you before you leave. If you've opened a cybersecurity theme bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called?
2: So I don't know if you know, but I actually spend a lot of time in craft cocktails. I did not know that. Uh, yeah. So I, funny, I, I ran a conference in Cambridge a few years ago and uh, I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if you know a back bar. It's a really good bar in Cambridge. No. They had a sister bar called Ames Street Deli, maybe? Anyway, they had it upstairs. A colleague friend of mine ran it, and he did a whole bunch of crypto-themed drinks for my conference. I don't remember the names of them. You know, right now, my favorite drink is a Chinar Negroni. Nice. So Negroni, uh sub-Chinner for the Campari. It's it's a really good drink. So I I will suggest that. In a sour right now, my favorite is something called a triple crown. I forget who invented it, but it's basically a whiskey sour with uh, grapefruit liqueur. It's a nice. phenomenally good drink. So look up, look that a serious eats as the recipe. Nice. Uh, I tend not to like cutesy drink names. I'm, I, I I will not order drinks if the name is too dumb, which is probably, you know, <laughs> kind of dumb of me, but I, I don't, I don't like dumb cutesy drink names. And I don't know what that, so I, I think a lot about my drink list. Now I'll have cocktail parties at home back when I used to be able to have parties at home where I come up with a cocktail menu, 10 or 12 drinks and mix drinks all night for my friends. So I like making menus and making balanced interesting menus. I don't really think about naming stuff. I'm good at naming books, okay. but I don't name, name drinks, but I do pay a lot of attention. <laughs> to the
1: names, especially. What, what about the cybersecurity theme bar? Could you name that? I have
2: no idea, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean okay. the coolest bar with a security theme Well, there two I can think of. One is, of course, uh, PDT in New York, which you'd enter through a phone booth at a hot dog stand in the East Village. And that is literally how you got into the bar. You'd go into the phone booth, close the door, pick up the receiver, say who you were, and then the, then the secret door on the other side, of the phone booth would open, and you'd go into the bar. Uh, then there was a bar in London, one of my favorite bars in London. Oh, the, it was a secret bar upstairs from another bar. And if you were there enough, they gave you a key to it. And here I am, like living in Minneapolis. And I'm flying to London enough that I get a key to the secret bar in the upstairs of another bar in London. That was kind of neat. And I'm glad bl- the, the bar upstairs are called Jub Jub Room. And I'm forgetting the name of the downstairs bar. I haven't been to London recently. It's, it's it's a fun question and if you gave me 24 hours notice i would have had an answer for you but cold i'm not able to do it fair enough no we,
1: that's the news we're looking for though is the secret bars and 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 how to get into them so <laughs> yeah we in minneapolis have one We had
2: one in the before hope it's still open when we uh we'll get back into bars called volstead's emporium and it was like a round back in this seedy alley and this steel door downstairs, this rickety staircase. And then open door, and this is beautiful old bar inside. They had a secret room. I used to have birthday parties in there.
0: Yeah, we're actually in a speakeasy right now. This is how. Uh, this is how. I'm, I'm
2: noticing your your bar back there, <laughs> and I'm trying. I've been looking to see what's what's written on the uh, chalkboard, and you know what the what the what the bottles are. I, I see a nice Amara collection behind your ear. Yeah. Well, yeah, hey. I
0: think, Bruce, we're going to add some of the drinks you mentioned on the chalkboard. Those sound awesome.
2: All right. You send me an email. I'll send you recipes.
0: Will do, Bruce. Hey, I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks for having me. It's fun.
0: Absolutely. Barcode patrons. If you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit thebarcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers.
1: Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks
0: for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out
2: at thebarcodepodcast.com.